Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. This interview with Lewis Howes really surprised me on a lot of levels. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. We'll get to it in a minute. Uh, But first, your phone calls. And before we do the phone calls, my usual caveat, which is not a meditation teacher, not a mental health expert. I'm just a journalist and a meditator, uh, and I'm doing my best to answer these questions because I love taking them. And uh, I'm really excited about the fact that we've started adding this to the podcast. So um, just know that I don't uh, know what the question is going to be in advance, and I'll do my best to answer it. Here we go. Here's question number one. Hey, Dan. Justin from New York here. Uh, Quick question. If you're sort of in and out or or lapsed, uh, possibly from meditation and, you know, you, you find yourself, you know, walking to a stressful meeting or on the verge of a experience that you might only uh, find stress in. Um, you know, are there are there quick sort of techniques or, or fixes um, that, that you might employ to kind of combat that and, and achieve, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, just a, an overwhelming calm as you head into a situation where, you know, without that, you, you might normally, uh, you know, have a negative reaction. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Two things to say. One is I'm going to make a pitch for regular meditation practice because I don't think meditation works as well in acute situations without a baseline of practice. I don't know if I'm going to try an analogy. Maybe this works, but maybe like with physical exercise, if somebody's chasing you, a mugger, you're going to do much better in that chase if you've got a baseline of running. Same is true in in like you're walking into a stressful meeting with your boss or whatever, and you're like, oh, damn, I wish I'd been meditating more frequently for the last two years because I'm freaking out right now. Um, If you don't have a regular meditation practice to call on, any mindfulness you're going to bring to this situation is, in my view, uh, significantly diminished because you just your your muscles are have atrophied a little bit. That being said, all is not lost. I do think it's better to embrace some of the meditative techniques uh, than not to. Uh, So what would I do? Uh, You use the term I believe you use the term overwhelming calm. I don't know. I don't I don't I'm not familiar with that feeling. Um, I, I would a take <laughs> take out of the mix the expectation that you would ever be able to achieve that because um, that that's just going to become another source of self-flagellation. You know, you're going to feel bad that you can't achieve that. It's OK to be nervous. Some actually being a little bit nervous is good. You know, it can keep you in my experience, it can keep you on your toes. Um, in fact, when I'm when I'm completely not nervous. That's usually when I make the the dumbest mistakes. Uh, so I, a little bit of nerves uh, makes sense to me. Again, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience here. But, of course, you don't want that to, to go too far. Uh, you don't want it to go, for example, to a panic attack. I've had that happen, um, and it wasn't fun. Um, so I'll just, you know, recently I was on the Rachel Ray show, and I, so I, occasionally I go on these t- talk shows and, you're standing backstage and there you can hear the host, uh, you know, reading your, you know, introduction, you know, off the teleprompter saying, OK, here comes Dan Harris. And, you know, you're going to have to walk out and there's going to be a lot of people yelling. Well, I find that kind of stressful. 
I don't know what the stress the situation you're in that's stressful, but that that's something that stresses me out. And and honestly, the things the two things that I will do in those situations that make me feel a little better, not overwhelmingly calm, but just a little better and able to just hang in there is the one is going to sound ridiculously obvious, but taking deep breaths really works. There's a reason why parents, myself included, tell kids to take deep breaths. It works uh, physiologically uh, and psychologically. So I'll do that. I'll try not to make them too obvious. And the other thing is I'll just employ basic mindfulness, which is tuning into, you know, if I'm feeling a little scared, if I'm worried, where, you know, just trying to step out of the story of the worry and the fear and just examine where is this showing up in my body? Is it my feeling, my chest buzzing a little bit? Am I, is my head throbbing a little bit? And that act, which sounds really basic and is, uh, it has this incredible, for me, has this incredible uh, value of pulling you out of being so caught up in the inner momentum of your fear and uh, nervousness and sort of uh, phantasmagoric projection into the future about all the horrible things are going to happen if you misstep in any way. And uh, even if for just a few nanoseconds, that's all that I mean, that's 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 a huge leg up because just for a few nanoseconds, you're not so caught in the fear and just do that over and over again until I have no choice. And I the stage manager is pushing me out and I got to go be chipper on television. Uh, so I, your, your stressors are almost certainly entirely different, but you can you can extrapolate from what I've just described, which is deep breaths and a little bit of mindfulness can go a, a long way. I would just go back to my original in closing here, I would go back to my original point, which is I think those measures are supercharged by having a daily practice, which is why I advocate for it. Not to be annoying. I'm not trying to lecture you or tell you you're, you're doing your life incorrectly by saying you don't have a, um, a daily meditation practice or saying you, you should have a daily meditation practice. I, I hate the being in the position of finger wagging. I just think it's to your benefit is my point. Okay, second question. Here we go. Hi, Dan. This is Jennifer. I'm down in Florida. I love your podcast. I love your app. And I don't have a question, but I just wanted to share a funny story because the other night I was lying in bed awake listening to my husband snore, which is something that he does uh, frequently, but it was particularly bad this week because he had a cold. And, of course, my normal reaction is to get frustrated and even a little angry, but I am decided I'm going to apply what I've learned with 10% happier and I was going to make his snoring the focus of my awareness and I did and I meditated on it for about 15 minutes and it was pretty interesting. Um, it was kind of funny. The sounds were pretty funny but it really made me feel a bit more tender toward my husband. So thank you. Um, although I will admit after about 15 minutes I did gently uh, wake him up and ask him to roll over. But anyway, thanks for everything you're doing. I love it all. Keep it up. Bye. All I can say to that is bravo. I mean, that's so well done. Um, because honestly, I would have gone to sleep on the couch. And my wife doesn't snore. Um, I think I might sometimes. But I would have done, either I would have done the poking thing right away, or I would have gone to sleep on the couch. <laughs> um, but your method is phenomenal. It's fantastic. You say it better than I could have, so I'm not going to say much more other than, again, bravo. Um, all right. Our guest this week, Lewis Howes. Here's here's the short bio, and then I'm going to embroider a little bit on top of that. He's a, a New York Times bestselling author. He's got a couple of books, including a new one out right now, uh, The Mask of Masculinity. 
Uh, he's also an entrepreneur. He's a former pro athlete. He's a world record holder in football. And uh, he's got a, a hit podcast called The School of Greatness with Lewis Howes. Um, and on the podcast I've been on there, he shares inspiring stories from brilliant business minds, athletes, influential celebrities. Um, I, I don't fit in any of those uh, buckets, but somehow I got on there. Anyway, yeah, he is a, in a really warm and interesting and interested dude. Uh, and he... You know, presents as he could be really intimidating. He's giant and really good looking and seems to have everything. Um, and yet he is, as you will hear, shockingly honest about some of his own vulnerabilities and personal traumas. And so one of them in particular, come, which is which I did not see coming, uh, comes up in the in, in the middle of this interview. And I was quite moved by his ability to talk about it the way he does. So here he is, Lewis Howes. You were telling me before we started going that you started meditating in college? Yeah, when I was 18 uh, for sports originally. What I, was your sport? Football, basketball, and then I did like the, the decathlon. <laughs> yeah, I was at all sport, uh, an All-American in wow. football and the uh, decathlon. Yeah. Some generous stuff right there. Yeah, and so when I was doing the decathlon specifically, I would visualize um, the events are very technical. You know, the javelin, it's yeah. all like body alignment, the pole vault, the shot put, it's very like technical with the hips and everything in alignment. And so I would visualize every single night, um, just like going over the repetitions in my mind of what it would look like. My body going upside down with the pole vaults, you know, throwing the javelin, piercing through the sky, all these different things. And my sister had gone through a lot of different Buddhist trainings, you know, Reiki healing therapies, all these different things. And so she gave me a CD at the time of her you know, Buddhist yogi teacher, his name was Swami G from Nepal. Sounds Hindu. Yeah. And so I would listen to this audio of this thick accent of talking about the whole body, like connect to the whole body. And uh, I would hear his words every single night, just kind of like, I didn't know it was a meditation at the time. It was a guided meditation, you know, visualizing yourself uh, with the blue sky, visualizing, you know, a mountain, you know, just getting to a peaceful place. Yeah. Did it work? Did it, what did it do for you? Because you, when you, I started, you were a serious athlete. This yeah. Was, you were not, when I started no two months before, I, uh, when I started listening to this two months later, I then broke the world record for the most receiving yards in a single football game. So I was like, huh. Something's here. Where were you playing? I was playing at a small school called Principia College. It's a school for Christian scientists, not Scientology, but Christian science. Were you, did you come from that background? I did. I was raised in this religion called Christian science, yeah. And my dad was uh, very heavily into the church and the religion. And it always got mixed up with Scientology, but I tell people it's not Scientology. No, no, no. So, it's com yes. completely different. Yeah. Yes. We read the Bible and yes. all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. I'm not, I don't go to church anymore, but um, grew up in it heavily. And there was a school for Christian scientists. So I went to that school uh, in middle school, high school, and then a little bit in college. And uh, I'm going to apologize because I'm totally derailing you, but yeah. just curious, you don't go to church anymore. Does that, does that create a rift with you, you and your parents? No, no. <clears throat> um, my dad still does. My mom was never really in the religion, but just did because my dad was. And, um, I, it's interesting because I've interviewed so many fascinating spiritual leaders who are in religion, not in religion, you know, meditation experts, I've done these different meditation retreats. And so just understanding about religion and God and the world, it's just like, I still have so many questions uh. and I feel like a church 
that I grew up in didn't have all the answers. And there's still some mixed things. So I'm like just exploring and discovering and not right or wrong about any religion. But I think uh, the religion I want to be a part of is just love and inner peace and lifting humanity up. And so I'm happy to go to a church and like experience that type of uh, experience and just hear some great messages. But I don't associate with any type of religion. What is Christian science? I don't Christian science. You know, it's interesting because I. It's been a while since I've been a part of it, but really, I remember growing up, it gave me such a powerful foundation in a sense because a couple things my dad taught me early on. We, he never celebrated my birthday early on, and I didn't understand this. When everyone else had their birthday celebrated, I'd go to their parties, but then it was my time to, to for my birthday, no cake, no present, no celebration. And I didn't understand why. I was kind of mad at my dad early on until later in life I would ask him, he said, I never wanted you to be limited by your mind. And I never wanted you to say that you were too young or too old to chase your dreams. And so many people focus on their age as a limiting factor in their life. And celebrating your age only reminds us of how limited we actually are. So he came from an infinite space. He always said, you know, time is infinite. He never carried a watch, but he was always on time and punctual. So I was just always like, huh, interesting. And he never, I didn't have any um, shots as a kid. For yeah, life. so that's part, that's the controversial part of the church, he, if I recall. Yeah, he is, you know, he was more of like an extremist where he was just like, we're, if anything happens, we're going to pray about it. And that, I think sometimes that gets controversial because kids get really sick. Very sick. Yeah, yeah. some kids have. And then, the, yeah, this was back in like the 90s or the 80s when there was like news stories about parents who were neglecting or something and then someone died, right? Because they didn't take them to the hospital or whatever it may be. Um, and so my dad just always said that we are spiritual beings. You know, he was always like emphasizing we are not material, we are spiritual. And therefore, spiritual being can't be physically harmed. He would just ingrain that in my mind. Huh. And, you know, in the religion, you know, talks about spirit over physical and things like that. Um, but he was more of like an extremist. So there would be people that were like, no, like if you break your arm, go to the hospital and get it set. My grandfather would always say that Christian science means common sense, is what he told me. CS means common sense. And he was like, go take care of yourself. Like, whatever you got to do, do it. And then come back to prayer and to the mind. And so it gave me a foundation because in sports, when other kids were getting hurt, I was able to take my mind to a place that I thought a lot of kids weren't able to. And I was able to push through a lot of physical uh, boundaries because I was trained in an early age that I was a spiritual being and that there was no room for uh, physical harm in my life. But it was always very conflicting because I was like, well, this hurts when I like pinch myself or mm-hmm. cut myself. I'm like, so what do you mean? Am I not? So I was just always confused. And that's why I think, you know, there's holes in religions and things like that where it's just like, well, it doesn't have all the answers. And so I was just more of a seeker of the truth. And meditation, I think, really supported me and, and brought me back full circle towards connecting to the to the inner mind, to the inner peace, to finding peace even through chaos and how to really connect to soul, spirit, mind, um, and, and something more powerful than our current chaotic situation. And um, you, know, you, you, talk, you talk all about this as well. So it was a powerful upbringing, being in the, the religion and being around the mindset and the people are so loving and giving yeah. in that religion that I have like nothing bad to say about it. It's just uh, there were some 
extremists who I felt like, you know, people got hurt because they didn't go take care of themselves or get medicine or go to the hospital and, and, you know, people died, you know, at certain stages, you know, so because they were like, well, I'm just going to pray on this and I'm going to just know the truth that I'm a spiritual being and I'm going to be okay. I think that's, that's not common sense. And so I always come from the place of common sense now. It's like, if anything happens to me, I'm going to go to the hospital and get my tooth fixed. My dad won't even go to the dentist. You know, he was like that extreme where he was like, no, like I'm just going to work through the pain and overcome it mentally and, and spiritually. And in some ways I love his mindset for that, but in other ways it like hindered him. You know, he had a hernia like for 30 years and he would never get it fixed because he was just like well i'm just gonna rise above it and i'm gonna know the truth and think spiritually over physically and it always affected him and so i'm just like go get a simple surgery yeah you know to fix yourself and you'll be good to go so i think there's something to be said for like pushing our minds to what's capable in our bodies and in our lives but also having common sense and doing what we need to do yeah i like the way your grandfather put it Yeah. yeah So yes, common sense. And when I went to this uh, meditation retreat uh, called One World Academy. This was when? Last year in October. I went for two weeks. Uh, two weeks? Two weeks, yeah. And is it like a silent deal? Or Not you a can silent talk? deal. Okay. It was a lot of like exercises. A teacher would teach some stuff. We would practice it. And they would put us into longer like five, six-hour meditations that felt like 30 minutes. And <laughs> really – it five, six-hour meditation? It felt like maybe it was 30 to 45 minutes, but they were like, no, it's like 3 a.m. And we started at like 9, and you're like, what? It was just like the time and space. What were span. they doing in these meditations? It was interesting because I've been doing my own meditation since college. Like I would listen to this CD for years, right? And that was pretty much all I did. Even as you like went pro and all that? Even stuff. after that. Yeah. I was pro, like even on to my business life after pro. I would just listen to this one CD because I was like, I had the best results of my life. I broke a world record. I was like doing this and that, like all American. I was like, I'll just keep doing what works. I didn't really explore other meditations because I was so used to this. Then I started, you know, learning about Headspace and other stuff that was happening a few years ago. And I started listening to the audio programs and different audio meditations. I think I listened to a couple of things from Deepak four or five years ago, just like different stuff here and there, 10 minute guided meditations. And I was like, oh, these are nice. They're very similar to what I was listening to. And then, but I'd never been to like an intensive thing. I've heard about, you know, I heard about TM and other workshops that people were doing locally. But I was like, if I'm going to do something, I want to go to kind of like this quote unquote source of meditation or like a place where it gets me out of my environment yeah. and experience it and really kind of disconnect and just go all in. So I'd heard about One World Academy. It's actually where Tony Robbins went a couple of years ago. And essentially changed his entire language for his 30-year workshop. He used to always say, you got to get into a peak state of mind. That every one of his workshops, he'd be like, let's get in peak state, peak state. That's where you create the best results in your life. Then he went to this workshop called One World Academy. And he learned that there are only two states, a beautiful state and a suffering state. <laughs> and a beautiful state is coming from a place of love and joy and peace and harmony and creativity and all these things, that's a beautiful state. And the suffering state is the ego mind, the resentment, the anger, frustration, jealousy, whatever. A peak state is so hard to sustain 24-7, you know, for all of your life. It's hard to be like up that high energy all the time. But a beautiful state is something we can sustain. And a suffering state, once we realize we're in that state, we can disassociate our ego from it and come back to a beautiful mm -hmm, state. Mm -hmm. 
And so I was like, let me go try this place out because I'd heard some great things about it. And there was zero like religious attachment or who go- runs the thing. Uh, is a, a married couple, um, Krishna G and Preeta G, their names. And the stemmed from, uh, they have another facility called oneness that it's kind of where it broke off from oneness was more, uh, I've never been, but it's, I think they have like 200,000 people go a year mm. in India to their like facility called oneness. And, um, I think what I've heard about it is there's more connection to like, god and and religious type of language not all of it but there's more ceremonies around that where i was just like i want to be i want to find a place that doesn't say well this is the only way right and that's what i found with one world academy they 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 break down the ancient indian wisdom of meditation and then they do research on all the science behind the body, the breath, the mind. They do all the research to back, okay, why should we hold the breath at the top for two count? Why should you hum and close your mouth? What happens to oxygenating the blood in your cheek? And what does that do to access different part of your mind when you do that? And what's the number of repetitions for doing all these things? So they broke it down in much more scientific basis with like ancient wisdom as well. They don't talk about God and any of that. Um, so for me, it was really insightful. And I didn't want to start with a silent meditation, which you just did 10 days, which I want to get into. Um, I wanted to be able to like explore and ask questions and yes. talk and yeah. like get hear from the class and not just be like go right in silent. And so for me, that worked. They did a ton of different exercises and some things they had, you know, just some uh, some some supportive instrumental music over things. Other things, we would we would do them in the middle of the night when we were already kind of like tired and go to like the craziest places in our minds. Mm. I mean, now I have this process every morning for about twelve to fifteen minutes, depending on how long I do it for. That I go through a process. One of the meditations they created was called Soul Sync. It's just like syncing to your soul, essentially, and it's a number of different. Um, breathing strategies, uh, thinking about certain things, visualizing your intention for the day, expressing gratitude, things like that. But there's a part of the meditation that allows you to, it's a, an unstructured part where it allows you to explore yourself and it allows you to explore the minds. And during this place of my mind, I always, uh, when I did this and learned this in India, they asked us at one point to elevate, to like imagine ourselves elevating just off the ground a couple feet, right? It was just as an exercise to see what was possible. And when I did that, I kept elevating in, the, in you know, my mind. I was elevating and I saw myself kind of going into the clouds and feeling very light and feeling very at peace and feeling very like loved and these things. And then I imagined myself like Gumby arms, like stretching out my arms and picking up all the kids with any type of pain and bringing them up into the clouds with me and them all smiling and feeling this sense of peace and love in their heart. And it was like a big dance party of like all these kids dancing, having fun. And then I brought all the adults up as well, just kind of reached out and just went over the whole earth and like scraped everyone up and just pulled everyone up into the clouds. It's like a dance party. And then while everyone's dancing, and I do this every morning when I do my meditation practice, so it might sound a little weird. Then, well, it actually, just sounds like a 
a personalized version of compassion meditation. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like uh, compassion meditation. It can sound a little sappy, but you're cult- deliberately cultivating giving up S about people, mm. right? Okay, I'm not allowed to swear. You are allowed to swear. They won't <laughs> let me swear on this podcast, even though it's mine. Um, compassion meditation people. is like you're systematically like developing the ability to care about other human beings other than yourself, including yourself. But what you're doing is just like you made up your own version of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to me, it sounds legit. Yeah. And so what I do is, and, and tell me if I'm going a little too off here. What I There's do no is, too off on this show. <laughs> <laughs> what I do is I... Uh, I start to, from this one experience that I had in India, I kind of just repeat it and go a little further in my mind. And after that, I I saw myself kind of like looking up in the sky and then kind of Superman flying through the, the atmosphere into outer space, into like this sense of like quietness, stillness. And then I kept exploring and like looking up farther and farther. So I just like went as fast and as far as I could through outer space until I looked back as I'm flying, as weird as this sounds, I look back and the earth like gets smaller and smaller until it like disappears into the into the back of the space. And so now I'm in outer space and I'm surrounded by planets and stars and I'm like jumping on planets and touching planets with my hand and just slightly like shifting them and like moving <laughs> them and like spinning them on my finger and just like playing in outer space by myself. And for me... I think of that as like how expansive our mind is and how how vast the opportunities are in my world. And that's kind of the metaphor for myself is like that I can do what I want to do, that I can create what I want to create if I can see it in my mind. And, and this is the every morning? Yeah, okay. every morning. And then what I do, again, may sound a little weird, I, f- I fly back towards Earth. <laughs> It sounds weird talking about it. For me, it's like makes sense when I'm doing it. You have this look on your face; people can't see. I'm like, like should I be talking about this? I probably shouldn't be. People think I'm crazy. Uh, so, I f- no, actually, I have something to say. When we're done, yes. it's actually going to um, make you feel better. But okay, keep cool. going. So, I fly back into Earth like warp speed, and then what I do is I come back down and I go through. <laughs> I go. <laughs> I go through the Earth's core until I find, like, the smallest grain of sand at the very center of the core of the Earth. <laughs> and what I, this is what happened to me. It was just like I couldn't – it was like I couldn't control what was this happening. This is happening organically in India. In India a year ago, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. And it was like <laughs> – so I saw this – and for whatever reason, I was like, I'm going to see what's inside this sand. So I punched through this grain of sand. And in a universe was created a thousand times bigger than the one I was in. It exploded and expanded into a universe like the one I was in, but a thousand times more infinite. And then I flew through to the middle to finding a planet, through to the the center of the Earth's core for that planet, till I found the smallest sand and exploded through it and opened it up and expanded a whole another universe, even bigger, and kept doing that over and over again. And for me, I was like, "Why is this happening?" <laughs> But then I finally like came back to Earth and sat down to where I was and like put myself back in my body from where I was in my mind. And it really kind of reminded me like, you know, when I go into a place in my mind, like how small things actually are when Earth is – I can't see Earth anymore in my mind in this meditative state. Like my problems really aren't that big. Like it's so tiny when I look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. And also from the perspective of – Things are there's so much abundance in the world, 
and there's so much opportunity for me to create what I want to that I don't need to doubt myself or limit myself to what is possible. And so for me, it's really more of a practice of like just coming back to a place of perspective, creating an intention of what I want to do that day and being very grateful for what I have. Yeah. Well, so that they, you, you redeemed the whole thing right there at the end, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I think we probably don't practice the same kind of meditation and you maybe don't think about it the same way I do. But I think the, 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 the top line, the headline on meditation is it's training your mind. Yes. That's what it is. And the exciting thing to know is that the mind is trainable. We're not stuck with the mind we have right now and the things we want, like patience, compassion, calm, mindfulness, generosity. These are trainable assets and the things we don't want, like uh, self-denigration, uh, anger, um, uh, uh, selfishness we can work to de-emphasize these in our minds. Mm. And so, <laughs> therefore, there are limitless kinds of mental training, just like there are limitless, almost limitless kinds of sports. Yeah. And uh, you are training clearly through um, this exercise, perspective, compassion, gratitude, uh, a sense of what's possible. Mm -hmm. So... And I got your back is what awesome. I'm saying. I love it. Yeah. Tell me about your experience of the 10 day journey. Yeah, it was cool, man. It was cool. It was like, uh, well, I don't want to say cool. It was arduous it's and hard, a lot of it, it sucked. Yeah. But it's so it's, it seems like forever, doesn't it? Yes. And then the big problem is for me, I create a lot of suffering for myself of, you know, day two. I'm like, I have eight more days of this. Oh How am gosh. I going to make it? But the thing you realize very powerfully is that is just a thought. That is just the mental phenomenon of doubt, like doubting why am I here? Can I make it? What's the point of this? And just as soon as you are mindful, another way of saying that is as soon as you're just aware of that and not fighting with it, it goes away. Yeah. And it comes back. But all you have to do is have a little machine gun in your head, a nonviolent machine gun in your head that is filled with uh, mindfulness of just regular awareness. Uh, and every time the doubt comes back, if you catch it, it evaporates. Um, and that is just, and when you do that at high intensity, high dosage, very interesting things mm. happen in your mind. You realize the mind is capable of so much more uh, than we, and this is going to be cutesy, think. Mm -hmm. um, it's so, it is capable of so much more. And uh, you, that to me, as much as I fight going on retreat, I, I walk away with an enormous amount of confidence. You could even say faith that, uh, that it is worth it. Yeah, uh, because absolutely. I always have experiences that make me realize um, uh, we are missing so much in our daily lives, walking around in this fog of this sort of autopilot of our wanting stuff, not wanting stuff. Comparing. Our, yeah, comparing and on our phones. And um, that if you set that aside, even for nanoseconds at a time, you realize how much you're missing. And, and it, it unfortunately <laughs> requires some artificiality, like taking yourself, as I did, into the woods of Massachusetts and, and you know, walking at a snail's pace all day long and sitting and doing meditation for 11, 12, 13 hours a day. Oh and it's, Yeah, it's a ton. It's a ton. It's hardcore. Um, but in my view, absolutely worth it. What were the two biggest lessons you learned this time? If you are... Suffering in any way, there is something you are not aware of. There's something you're not mindful of. So in other words, if you're in a bad mood, 
if you bring mindfulness to what it, to the fact that maybe it's anger, jealousy, whatever, for the moment where you are just mindfully aware of it, it will evaporate. That doesn't mean your problems will all disappear. But right now, you have unlimited, permanent access to just what I guess you could call present moment awareness. You always have access to whatever's happening right now just to coming back to being aware of whatever's happening right now. And that will stop whatever spinning off you're doing in your head, planning, hating, wanting. Uh, and and you can always settle back into this just kind of non-judgmental, mm. friendly awareness of what's happening. Yeah, I learned about suffering from One World Academy. They taught that, hopefully I'm not butchering it, they said that suffering comes from the obsessive, self-centric thinking. And when we are aware of how obsessive we are of our self-centric thinking of that thought, that mindful thought, then we can say, okay, I'm aware of it. And now I can move on. Yes, that's, that's it. right. It's, it's not more. Being, it's being aware of that moment. Yeah. It's not more complicated than that. It's like you're sitting, I'm, we're holding water bottles right now. I'm sitting here thinking about, God, Lewis is so tall. I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs> Why am I so short? Blah, 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 blah. And then boom. What does it feel like to hold this bottle in my hand? What is it's there's coolness here. What does it feel like to feel jealous? Oh, my chest is buzzing a little bit. It's yeah. it maybe my makes my stomach upset. That simple awareness, which by the way is available to every Homo sapien, is uh, is kryptonite for the ego. And it's just you have to it you have to practice it. And that's what a meditation retreat is. Is just taking it and stepping on the gas. Yeah. And the other thing is you at high, high dosages of meditation, you just start to see the world very differently, that right now the world seems solid, right? Right in our regular life, like this is a microphone, this is me, I'm pounding my chest. But when you actually pay close attention for hours and hours and hours on end, you see that actually the world isn't as solid. Every second is filled with millions of minute sensations, your butt on the chair, what you're thinking, what you're hearing. Doom, 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 just like that on the Wheel of Fortune when they spin the wheel. As a, it, and when you pay attention, your mind gets really concentrated. You close your eyes. You're able to tune into the momentariness of reality, and it pixelates. Mm. And that is super interesting. It's yeah. not wearing loincloth and sitting on a cliff with the wind blowing through your hair. It's actually – it's not tuning out or zoning out in that way. It's zoning in to what is here all the time that you don't see. And for mm. me, as a, somebody who comes from a very secular scientific background, that is awesome. Yeah. Do you feel like it's important for you to keep going to these silent retreats yes. or – even yes. though you've done them five, yes. six times yes. now and you've done many things, why is it important to continue practicing it every year? The ego is strong, an right? insidious, <laughs> creative, relentless oh, force. And you, it, you have spent a lifetime practicing unawareness. You have evolu- millennia's, millennia of evolution that has bequeathed you a mind that is really good at fixating on things you want and avoiding things you don't. And in order to hack that, it requires a lot of work. Now, yeah. I actually am not of the belief that – like I think your 12 to 15-minute-a-day medit- daily-ish meditation routine um, or somebody who's doing one to five minutes a day of just regular mindfulness, uh-huh. I actually think that is absolutely enough. But if, like me, you got the bug and you want to go further, yeah. I, I am of the view that for me, uh, a meditation retreat a yeah. year at least <clears> – <throat> is what makes sense. But you said something about self-centrism 
And I want to get you to be self-centered for a second um, because I want to hear a little bit more about your story. Sure. Um, you, you, you were we, we at the beginning of this. We talked about you um, being an athlete, mm-hmm. and I just want to hear about the road from being an athlete to being this kind of guru of greatness. And, and I'm, by the way, I, I, I'm not trying to make you sound like you take yourself that seriously because yeah, you, yeah. you don't, which is one of the many things I like about you. But you, you're like, it's just clear to me you're a guy on a mission to kind of figure yeah. stuff out for yourself, which is yeah. really interesting and charming. Yeah. And uh, so how did that happen? You you were you were flying high in, in, in sports for a while. Playing football. My dream was to be in the NFL. I, I played arena football first with the goal of making it to the next step. So arena football is indoor football for those that don't know uh, what that is. And I broke my wrist. I had surgery on my wrist diving into a wall playing arena football. And for a year and a half, I was in recovery. I had a cast on for six months, a uh, full arm cast in this position, which pretty much my arm was up for the whole six months. And I was sleeping on my sister's couch at that time. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a college degree at the time. I left early to go pursue this dream. And this was in 2008, 2009, when the economy was pretty bad. So people weren't hiring people with master's degrees at the time. And I didn't have a bachelor's degree, right? So I um, was trying to figure out, well, who am I? That's a pretty dire situation. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot less, there's a lot worse things in the world that oh, people course. go through. But for but me, still, for you, that had yeah, to be pretty cat- It was devastating because yeah. my dream was over. Yeah. I'm 23, 24 now at the time, and I'm, and I'm living on my sister's couch trying to think about, well, who am I? What's yeah. my identity? And my whole life was sports. Now I can't do it. Uh, I've never made money in my life except for just training and playing football. So I don't even know what it looks like to get a job. And I really didn't – I just wasn't sure. I was like, well – what do I do? What skills do I have? What information can I have? You know, do whatever, whatever it may be. I got into LinkedIn early on. A mentor, when I was injured, said, "Why don't you just connect with people on LinkedIn?" I heard about this site, and people are getting jobs from it. So I said, "Okay." I spent about six hours a day for that year and a half connecting with people on LinkedIn, asking them questions, learning about their story, meeting them in person. These successful leaders in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living, and people just started to take notice that I was had such a big audience on LinkedIn. I had so many great connections. They would ask for introductions. Then I started hosting these kind of networking LinkedIn networking gatherings in all around the country. I started with one and five hundred people showed up. Wow. And I just promoted it on LinkedIn. I was just meshing one people one person at a time and said, Hey, I'm doing an event. Here's the information. Show up. And I would just do that all day for days because I had all this free time on my hands. And 500 people showed up. I had it free, but I got a couple of like companies to sponsor like a booth for like 250 bucks. So I made a thousand dollars on my first event. And I was like, "Huh, maybe there's something here. People need to connect and get opportunities in this time of the economy in 2008, 2009. So I did 20 events after that first event in that whole year. And I started charging at the door for an entry fee, five bucks. Then I started charging 10, 20. Then I started to get more sponsors for these events. I was getting like consulting deals from people saying, can you help me with my LinkedIn profile and show me how to do what you've done? So I was charging, you know, these one-on-one kind of profile makeover sessions. Then uh, another mentor said, you should write a book and teach people how you're doing all this about LinkedIn. So I wrote a book with him and I would sell my books at the events then I built a relationship with the venues and said, hey, can I get a commission of any of the food and bar? Because they were usually at restaurants and bars. 
So I was getting a 15% commission, 20% commission, just trying to figure out how can I make money doing this one thing. You were hustling, man. Hustling. I was still on my sister's couch, but I was like, how do I like just make any money? And these events were kind of like that early testing ground for me of learning what it meant to be an entrepreneur. I was like, okay, how do I just turn dirt into gold? How do I just manifest these things? How do I add value? How do I uh, solve a problem for someone? And how do I build relationships? So early on, I was building relationships and I was interviewing these people without recording them. I was connecting with successful leaders and I would ask them how they got to where they were. I was so fascinated by their journey of how they got there. And, uh, you know, the school of greatness is essentially what I always wanted to do, but I didn't have the credibility or the platform or the audience to do it 10 years ago. And then I kind of took this LinkedIn experience. I essentially, uh, eventually someone said that they wanted me to speak on their online webinar, like an online platform to teach LinkedIn because they didn't know anyone else online who was talking about LinkedIn the way I was. I was writing articles. I was just trying to be like, know everything about it and use it for myself and help other people. So I did this free, like 60 minute, you know, talk online. And he said he wanted me to offer uh, an online course afterwards. Now I knew nothing about online marketing or online courses or business in general. I was just kind of scrapping around trying to make a few bucks here and there at these events. But I did this speech online on the webinar. And at the end I said, Hey guys, I don't have anything for you right now, but I have a PayPal link and for 150 bucks, I'll do three more of these training sessions to teach you more advanced strategies on LinkedIn. Here's the link, like check it out and I'll send you something in a couple weeks. So there was pretty much like blind faith. They weren't going to get anything. And, you know, at the end of the webinar, there were 600 people on the webinar. So at the end of the webinar, I like closed down the webinar screen and opened up my Gmail account. And it was probably one of the most beautiful sites I'd ever seen, except for probably like, you know, a beautiful girl when I was like 12 and <laughs> was in the girls for the first time or something. But the entire, uh, my entire email screen and the whole screen on my computer said, you've received payment on every single line in my email. Wow. You've received payment. You've received payment over and over again. Much more of our conversation right after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. 
third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Are you hiring? Join the over 3 million businesses that use Indeed.com for hiring. You can post a job in minutes and manage your candidates from an easy-to-use dashboard. Post your next job on the world's number one job site, Indeed.com. Are you feeling limitless? I don't think I've ever told this story publicly on the air anywhere, but I'll tell it now. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Are you a psychiatrist? (laughs) No. Each week, we're taking an honest look at success and how to get there with the boldest, most influential women in the world. Jessica Alba, Ariana Huffington, Issa Rae, Barbara Corcoran, Robin Roberts. Welcome to No Limits. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This is No Limits. There was $6,200 instantly in my PayPal account. And at that time, I thought I was the richest person in the world. I was like, I've never seen this much money in my life. $6,200 was life-changing for me at the time. It was the great, it was like I won the Super Bowl. It was that big of a deal for me in that moment. I was, at the time, my sister kicked me out of her place. She was like, you need to pay rent or get a job or something. So I did what any young brother would do. I begged my older brother to let me crash at his place. (laughs) And he said, you got you know, he was married and had a kid. He was like, uh, my wife wants you to pay something. Can you pay two fifty a month for a room? So I was paying two fifty a month for a room at his place when this happened. And I was like, finally I can go get my own apartment. So I felt like I could finally like take care of myself after two years of just hustling and essentially begging to like live places and eat people's food. And it just didn't feel good to be yeah. like, you know, two years prior wearing a helmet and 20,000 screaming people like signing autographs and like being the man and playing football and all these things to sleeping on my siblings' couches and uh, having them support me. So it was like that moment where I was like, wow, here's something I could do. I could teach LinkedIn, offer value for people to help people and sell like this online, you know, training thing around it. And so I just put all my energy into figuring out online marketing, how to create a course, how to create value, sales, branding, design, like everything. I just obsessed over learning about business because I saw a way to a better future for myself Mm -hmm. and ended up creating a number of online courses over the next few years. Things really started to take off there where we were doing, I had a business partner where we were doing a couple million dollars a year in sales for for these online courses pretty quickly after that. Like once I figure something else that works, and if I have a good coach or mentor who's like, okay, here's the path, I went into athlete mode where I said, all right, I'm just going to execute and practice every single day and just get results and just get better. All I did was just like, I'm going to take as much action as possible to get me the financial results that I was looking for so I didn't feel broke anymore. And it worked. The challenge is I obsessed so much over it that I gained 50 pounds. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I didn't really have any good personal relationships. And I was obsessed with making money. And it became like my, you know, the thing that I needed the most. My my net worth became tied to my self-worth. Mm. And uh, it hurt me emotionally. And it's one of the things I, you know, talk not to plug my book, but it's one no, of the no, things. No, I, I just want to say this is a very plug-friendly zone, yeah, so okay, plug cool, away. Yeah. You know, all these things started happening where I was getting these great financial results. I was getting these accolades. I was achieving things. I was growing. And then... 
I sold the company and I started the School of Greatness podcast, the thing I really wanted to do, but now I felt like I had credibility, I had relationships where I could tap into these kind of influencers to have them on. And my podcast started growing and taking off and I started doing other things. But for whatever reason, I never felt fulfilled inside from sports when I would achieve my biggest goals, you know, two sports All-American, professional athlete, played on the USA handball team, still play with the team. All these things were dreams of mine. And yet every time I achieved them, it was like 10 minutes after I achieved these things, I was the most miserable person I'd ever been. And I was angrier and upset and resentful. And I never understood why. I was like, maybe my dreams are just so small. I need to keep dreaming bigger. And so I would go after something bigger to feel this fulfillment. And it wasn't until I hit 30, I'm 34 now, where I had like, you know, from what it looked like on the outside, I had a lot going on. I had like this beautiful girlfriend, but it was an extremely toxic relationship. I had, you know, just sold a multi uh, a company for millions of dollars. I was getting a lot of, you know, attention online and press. Like everyone was like, Lewis, you're killing it. But for me inside, I was like, I feel like I'm dying. You know, I may look like things are doing well and I was good at faking it. But on the inside, I was suffering. And my business partnership was suffering. My relationship was suffering. And I didn't know how to get out of it. And I was so reactive to everything in the world. Anytime I felt attacked or under criticism, it was like I had to defend my manhood or whatever it is, my masculinity. I had to defend myself constantly. And it was exhausting defending myself. And uh, I went to a, a emotional intelligence workshop where it was essentially kind of like group therapy, if I can explain it, where there was a lot of exercises, one-on-one, -on -one, group exercises, talking about the things that hold us back, talking about the things where we find suffering, pain, resentment, and going into like past relationships, you know, things that happened in school, things that happened with your parents, you know, any hard feelings you have about anything from your past. And then we focus on the vision for our future, the life we want to have, what we want to create in our business, our relationships, our health, those things. And after a few days of this, we were really diving in deep about kind of our past as a group. And the facilitator says, okay, enough of the past. We're moving towards our future, what we want to create. And at this time, you know, people are getting very vulnerable and opening up about things that have happened to them or whatever it may be, going through divorce or other heartbreaks, things like that. People are really opening up. And so it was a very vulnerable room already. It's about 50 of us. And he said, if there's anything that you haven't addressed in your life yet, anything at all that you need to address, now is the time. Otherwise, we're moving forward. And so there's silence for about a minute. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've addressed everything. I think I'm fine. I talked about my brother being in prison when I was eight for four and a half years. He was in prison. And I didn't have any friends during that time because in the neighborhood I was in, the other parents wouldn't allow their kids to hang out with me when my brother was in prison because they thought I would be just as bad, right? Uh, so I talked about that and, you know, overcame that. And my parents were fighting a lot when I was growing up and they got a divorce pretty much like everyone else in the room. So it was like I addressed my parents' issues uh, and the pain I had around that. I addressed, you know, heartaches of relationships I was in in the past. I addressed feeling bullied and picked on and insecure when I was in school because I was in the special needs classes. And I was just kind of going in my mind like, okay, what's the thing that I haven't talked about? And then I was like, what about that time I was raped by a man when I was five? It just kind of popped in my mind. And I was like, why have I never shared this with anyone in my life? 
why have I been so afraid and so embarrassed and ashamed to talk about this? And so in that moment, I stood up. It was like I just was like, if I don't share this now, I'll never share it. And And you shared it with anybody? Never shared it before. And it's something that comes up in my mind all the time since I was five years old. For 25 years, no one had ever heard me talk about it. And so in my mind, I'm like, if I don't say this now in this room of like strangers that I've been with for a few days, like there's never going to be another setting that I feel comfortable opening up about this. So I, my body just like stood up for me. Mm-hmm. I, I walked to the front of the room. I didn't even like raise my hand and say I had something to say. I just like walked to the front of the room. It's like a semicircle of like chairs people are sitting on. And I remember I wasn't able to look up at anyone in the eyes because I was so ashamed about what I was going to say. So I looked down at the carpet and I walked through, you know, line by line. I was just like when I was five years old, I was at the babysitters and this man took me to the bathroom and I walked through the entire thing for the first time. I just didn't hold back. I walked through like the sights, the smells, the sounds, the taste, everything from that moment. And... I wasn't really like, I wasn't crying during it. I was just kind of like matter-of-factly talking about it, just kind of like this. And then, again, I couldn't look up at anyone. And I walked back when I was complete with the story. I just walked back to my chair, sat down, and it was like an eruption of tears I could not hold back. Just like it all started to come out of me, of just this like pain and sadness and relief and insecurities and fears and everything. Just like I started bawling. Thankfully, there was two women on the side of me uh, uh, sitting next to me who both started holding me and like were crying with me. So it was just kind of like an overwhelming moment where I felt like, okay, here's some comfort, but I'm so embarrassed and ashamed of what I just said. And what are these people going to think of me? And, And so I ran out of the room. It was in like a hotel conference ballroom area. And I ran out of the, the room, ran outside of the hotel and there was a there was a wall like uh, across the street. I walked across like an alley and there was like a, a back fence. And I put my hand on the on the wall and put my head on my arm just like in a shamed, you know, kind of like crying still. I couldn't stop. And after a few minutes, I was just like, I'm not going back in there. Like, I'm done. Like, this is it. I'm like, I got to go. I got to go home. I got to go figure this out. And after a few minutes, one of the most beautiful things happened in my life one by one, the men of the group who were in the group came up to me and gave me a big hug and looked me in the eyes. And they were like, you're my hero. They were like, you're so courageous. And yeah, you're my hero. And I've never heard someone who looks like you talk about right. these things. Right, and right. it's the last thing I expected you to say. And, you know, I've been judging you this entire time because of this, this and this. And well, they were jealous like me. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I had my guards up and my ego was up and I was trying to look perfect and all right, those things. Right, right. And they were like, you're unbelievable and this is amazing. And What a service to just to – there's so much shame associated – anybody that's sexually assaulted, yeah. there's so much shame. But there's, a, there's so much shame for, for men. Absolutely. And to have somebody like you get up and just matter-of-factly say it happened, of course yeah. it's not your fault. You know, like right. it's not an assault on your masculinity. For, right. In, in any real way. Sure. The challenge is, to, to finish that story, something amazing started to happen where these men were like, you know, for 30 years, for 40 years, this happened to me when I was a kid and I've never told anyone. And so they started to open up to me about things that happened to them, whether it be sexual abuse or other things they were ashamed of that weren't sexual abuse. 
it's like I gave them permission to like trust me and talk to me about mm -hmm. these things. Of course. Which was like, what? Like, you tr they were like, I trust you. I'll follow you anywhere. Some guy said that to me. I was like, what? You don't even know me. He was like, I've never seen something that courageous. I was like, what? I was like, I'm ashamed. I'm this. I'm crying. I'm like snot out of my nose. I'm like, you trust me. I'm like, you trust me. <laughs> and um, it was just a crazy experience where. So I. Do you I tell the story in the book? I do tell the story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I tell the story. And I. Um, I finished out the workshop for the next couple of days with just like a sense of freedom for the first time. I never felt this sense of inner freedom. It was like a weight was lifted off my shoulder. And I, and I, I talked to a lot of my, you know, I have a lot of gay friends and I talked to them about this experience. And they're like, that's exactly how it felt for me when I opened up to my parents about, you know, not being straight and feeling the, the shame and humiliation that it, I couldn't be myself or I couldn't talk about these things or whatever. And I felt like this sense of weightlessness for the first time, fear but also like weightlessness. I was like, are people that accept me now? You know, what if my, my parents didn't know, my family doesn't know, my friends don't know, will they accept me? You know, maybe this group will because we're in this like session together, but I was like, I don't know if I can tell anyone else. And everyone was like, you got to tell your friends and family. I was like, I don't know because what if they don't accept me? What if they don't trust me? What if they don't love me? It was my fear. And I talked to a, uh, a therapist friend of mine after this. And I just said, I don't know how to tell my parents or my my siblings, like, what? how do you even set a context around this? And she gave me a great piece of advice. She said, ask them a question first and see how they respond. And the question was, is there anything I could ever say or do that would make you not love me? Simple. She was like, ask them that. And you'll know really quickly if they're open. And I asked all of them that first, and they were like, absolutely not. Like, there's nothing you could ever say or do that would make you make me not love you. I asked them all individually. And then I share with them, especially my brother who went to prison as a, you know, when I was a kid who felt probably the most shame of like what he had our family go through and things like that. I think he was like, absolutely not. Like you can do whatever you want. I'll still love you, you know, cause he was, he went through that. And I was like, okay, I told all my family members one by one. And again, another powerful experience. Like when I opened up, it gave them permission. They shared stories about things that I had no clue about. And it brought, it brought us closer together. Like our relationships are all closer. And then I was like, well, my family has to love me, but can I tell my friends this? You know, they're going to make fun of me. But again, one by one, I started telling more and more people, and I realized I need to tell this until it doesn't have power over me anymore. Yeah, that's smart. Because when, you know, every time I said it to my family members, I was like stuttering, I was afraid, my heart was palpitating. And I was like, man, this thing still has power over me and ownership. It owns me. If I can't talk about something freely, it has control. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'm going to keep talking about this until I'm no longer afraid uh, and no longer afraid of people not loving me or accepting me or whatever. And I did that with all my friends until like after a few months, it, it started to not be hard anymore. You know, it started, it's still like a topic that obviously is very sensitive for a lot of people. But for me, I can talk about it matter of factly now because it's something I'm at peace with. I've forgiven myself. I've forgiven the man. I've forgiven, like, I've never seen him since, but I've come to peace with it myself. And I've, you know, I think I remember used to thinking, like, if I ever see this guy and, like, I will kill him. I used to think that to myself. Like, if I ever see this guy, I will literally kill him with my bare hands until I have no strength left and do whatever it takes to destroy this man's life until he is dead and can't breathe. That was, like, the amount of pain I was feeling growing up. And now I just give him a hug and I wouldn't 
be his friend and I wouldn't want to like hang out with him and I wouldn't want to like say what you did is okay because it's absolutely wrong. And I would, um, you know, make sure I'm very clear with that. But me hating someone else is not serving me and it's not serving humanity. It doesn't lift others up. It doesn't support my vision. Me speaking out on these things and creating awareness about it does support this type of situation. And I remember my friend saying, you've got to write, you've got to share this on your podcast. And I was like, no freaking way am I going to talk about this publicly. Um, but more and more people said, like, you have to because no one else is. There's no other white male athlete, jock looking straight man that I'm aware of who is openly talking about it, who has like a bigger platform. And so it became very um, aware to me that I was like, this is more of like a mission and a responsibility I have now that I feel like I, I need to do this. And if I'm not talking about this, I'm doing a disservice to humanity and to myself and to other men who are going through this. So when I talked about it on my podcast, I remember holding on to it. Like I recorded it and waited for months because I was terrified still of like, what if it hurts my business? What if people don't subscribe anymore? Like what if... What if, what if, what if? And I posted it, and it was the most downloaded thing I've ever put out there. Mm. And more so than that, within days, hundreds of essays of men all over the world were emailing me and saying, you know, my wife doesn't know. I've been married for 20 years. I have four kids. She doesn't know. This is what happened to me when I was seven. My this doesn't know. This person doesn't know. I've never told anyone. All They just started sharing stories of some of the most horrific stories I've ever heard about sexual abuse. And I was like, it made mine look like a, a Disney movie, my experience, compared to what I was reading to some of these men. And I realized, I was like, wow, there's so much more to this. I started doing research on like sexual abuse with men. And one in six men have been sexually abused. That's in record, right? It's one in four with women, one in six for men. But the challenge is growing up, at least from my experience, where I grew up, how I grew up, you know, very early on. You were, I was called names if I was affectionate with any of my guy friends. If I put my arm around a buddy of mine, if I just wanted to hug a friend, it was like they would push you off and say, don't be a f don't be a little bitch, don't be a little girl, don't be this, don't be that. So showing any type of affection or just humanity towards people, even if you're just like caring with your words, not like putting an arm around a friend. It was like always a word about, well, that's gay, that's that's f that's this, that's that, that's, you know, don't be a little girl, don't be a little this, don't be a pussy, don't be whatever. Like all the words that you would say. And as a kid, just trying to fit in and get a couple friends, I was like, okay, if, if I want them to like me, I have to like play along and not do what they, not be compassionate, not be caring, not be giving, make fun of other people, do these things. And I realized that as a, that's where this book started to come about was like this role of masculinity. You know, there's a lot of pain and suffering that I think men have gone through. Listen, women and gender nonconforming uh, and all human beings are going through their own types of pain and, and suffering. But I think as men, based on societal views and the roles that men are supposed to play, it's not okay to, like, be expressive. It's not okay to be vulnerable. It's not okay to show emotion or show a range of emotions that are sensitive and it becomes made fun of or looked down on or and all these other things happen to where the pain gets bottled up inside. And now we're seeing in the media a lot of the results from men who are unable to express themselves in healthier forms of communication 
We're seeing this this year more than ever. All the shootings, all the killings, the racial marches, the sexual abuse, the domestic violence, it's coming out more so than ever now. Sexual harassment. Tons of sexual harassment, right? Because, again, a lot of the different, and this book was researching with a lot of psychologists, why boys have been conditioned certain ways to not open up, not express themselves. Why why was I never told that it's okay to talk about these things? There was no hotline when I was five that if you've been raped by a man, here's what to do. No one ever told me these things. We were not taught these things. It was kind of like, be a man, toughen up in sports. Don't cry. Don't be a little girl. Get up. Get back up. If you show weakness, you're not going to play. It was like you always had to deliver and perform from my experience as a boy growing into a man. And I never wanted to be that way. Inside, I wanted to be more sensitive and vulnerable and connected and listening. And But I felt like I always needed to be right. I felt like I had to win at all costs because being right and winning meant that I was. it was connected to my self-worth. And if I lost then my self-worth was less than. If I was wrong, then I didn't have self-worth. If I wasn't making money, it was attached to my self-worth. So I started to put on all these masks. I started to say, I need to get rich so that I can find value in the world. I need to get these accomplishments, these sports accomplishments. I need to get the hot girlfriend so I can have this self-worth. But when I realized like, I had all those things, but I still didn't have any self-worth. And I was like, why? What's missing? And four years ago, this kind of workshop, this experience of opening up and talking about these things, going through deeper forms of meditation have allowed me to be aware fully of my conditioning, of my of why I've been wanting to be like the best at everything in the world and why I needed to win and why I needed to make a lot of money. And uh, it's been so powerful just being aware of it first, of like why I've been wearing all the masks of masculinity in my entire life and why I put them on at different times to protect myself and defend myself and what's available when I take them off and just reveal myself. Whenever I reveal myself, people say, you're my hero. I trust you. I will follow you anywhere. Anything you do, I want to be a part of. And I'm like, wow, all I have to be is my authentic, loving, caring, vulnerable self, not have all the answers, not need to win at, at all costs. I don't need to have all the money in the world, but I can still be competitive and win. I can still have the answers. I can still make lots of money, and that's okay too. It's just where is it coming from? Is it a deep desire to prove myself in the world, or is it more coming from a place to lift others up? And now I'm coming from a place of lifting others up. Your story is incredibly important and and just beyond brave, so bravo. Thanks. And I think it's just so useful for somebody in your position to say what you're saying. But just just back in, in my relentless push to make you <laughs> – to, to draw out your self-centrism because I'm just interested in you. Um, where do you – you mentioned Tony Robbins. Do you see yeah. yourself becoming sort of like a Tony Robbins? What do you see – where do you see this all going? I get, I get a – you know – Compared to him a lot. Like, this is our generation's Tony Robbins, and I'm flattered by it. I think he's incredible. I love I love his work. I love his message. I've had him on my show three times. He's amazing. He's a big inspiration for me. But I don't really want to be compared to anyone. I want to be the first Lewis Howes and kind of pave my own way. I'm inspired and use, you know, I speak at events, but it's not my main thing to, like, do these big workshops and, you know, do what he does. I can't do what he does. Yeah, you could. Uh, well, he does it in a way that's very unique to him, and I would do it differently. Yes, right? yeah. And I do a big event once a year, but I don't want to be doing you know five days like 
events every month the way he does it. I, f- I look at myself more as a facilitator and curator, you know, kind of like you. I'm just very curious to learn about people and ideas and then to distill those complex, challenging things into simple tools that we can apply in our life to live a better life. And that's what I really want to become. You're well on your way, my friend. You expressed some sheepishness earlier about plugging, but now I want to move into what I call the plug zone. All right. Where you just give give me every, give us everything. Like where can we, every book, the podcast, give give this the whole social media. Where can we find as much Lewis Howes as you can? Yeah, just at Lewis Howes everywhere. At Lewis Howes on social media, lewishowes.com, and then School of Greatest Podcast. And I've got a new book called The Mask of Masculinity, which is actually just as much for women as is, is for men because so many so many women are buying this and reading this and saying, wow, I understand my dad for the first time ever. I understand my husband for the first time ever. I understand why my kids don't look me in the eyes. I understand why my brother has been this disconnected to me for the last seven years. I understand the mask the men in my life are wearing. And once we are aware of what they're wearing, we can understand where it's coming from. And then there's some tools on how to connect with people to speak their language. And so that's what this book is all about. Um, but it's just been powerful to hear all the stories of men who are emailing me every day, opening up as well. It's been really cool. But you and you also just in, in, in terms of being holistic here in, in the plugging, you have a previous book that was a bestseller. Yeah, the School, School of, of Greatness. School yeah. of Greatness. Uh, yeah, which I believe is like the foundation from all the wise people I've interviewed. I distilled down the eight principles of greatness, and there's a lot of exercises and action plans on how to get clear on your purpose for your life, how to get clear on, you know, achieving those great things in your life. And it kind of gives you the roadmap for that. So that's that. And the School of Greatness podcast, which you've been on, which was a powerful interview. So thank you. And uh, in, and in the podcast, you really get a sense of what it is that I think fuel in part fuels your greatness, which is this curiosity. This yeah. You're just why you're a student. Yes. You are a student. I want to learn for the rest of my life. Yes. That really comes through. Yeah. It comes I'm through. just fascinated by so many people, ideas, how people think, how people got to where they are, what works, what doesn't work, what's available for us. I'm just fascinated by it all. Such a pleasure to have you on, man. Thanks for having Always me. Always great man. to see you. Appreciate it. Even if you remind me of my diminutive <laughs> scratch, stature. It's all right. You, you give me the inspiration of the voice that I wish I had. <laughs> all right, man. Great job. Thanks, Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. 
Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.